This is Echozoe Radio, episode 133 for May 2019 with Ryan Habana and Aaron Lavarco, a virtual tour of Israel. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 133 for May 2019 with Ryan Habana and Aaron Lavarco. Ryan is a frequent guest, a board member of Echozoi Ministries, and executive producer of The Conquest, a follow-up to the film Jerusalem's King and the reason behind our trip to Israel. Aaron Lavarco was first on the show in September of 2018 and returns to share some of the sites that you'd see on a tour of Israel. Ryan guides us through the sites that we'll see in Jerusalem, and Aaron joins us as we depart Jerusalem for other sites around Israel. This episode breaks from the norm in that it was produced primarily with video in mind. If you're able, I highly recommend stopping the audio and watching the episode in video format. You'll find that embedded at the show notes at echozoi.com slash 133, or via the Echozoi Ministries YouTube page. Also, we recorded on-site in various locations around Israel, so the audio will be noisy at times. You'll hear all of the normal background noises from the sites that we visited. Show notes for this episode are available. You'll find a basic outline of the discussion, scriptures referenced during the show, and related episodes from the Echozoi archives, and you can find that at echozoi.com slash 133. Finally, before we begin, new episodes of Lessons in Logic videos continue to be posted on a nearly weekly basis. You can find those at the Echozoi Ministries YouTube page. With that, let's visit the sites of Israel. So, welcome to Jerusalem. We're up on the kind of a rooftop garden of the hotel we're staying at in. Uh, I think it's the technically the old city. It's in yeah. the old city. I think yep. it's technically the Muslim quarter, but Either we're splitting the Muslim or Christian. Yep. Christian, uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is just off, kind of behind you and to your right as you're looking at us. And as you can see, we're right in front of the Temple Mount. We've got a view of uh, the Dome of the Rock here. We've got the Mount of Olives behind us. And uh, just a gorgeous view of the old city here in mm-hmm. Jerusalem. Yeah, and you really get, uh, I mean, if you go over the Mount of Olives, it's straight down. I mean, really, it's amazing when you just get over here. You can see right down to the Dead Sea from the top of the Mount of Olives on a clear day. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's actually about 3,500 feet elevation from here, yeah, about 50 miles to the yeah. to the Dead Sea, right over that hill. So, yeah, you have the probably the most striking um, 
you know, building that in Jerusalem is the Dome of the Rock. It's kind of the centerpiece, which stands where, um, you know, somewhere around there where it is, it is very likely the uh, the both first and second temples stood. Sure. And that is actually not a mosque. It's a, it's, a, it's a shrine. And it's actually not even the most holy site to the Muslims on the mount. That is located farther south at the Al-Aqs Mosque. And then there's yeah. a, it's like a kind of a black, almost black dome there. Right. Um, on the other side of that minaret. Yes, that's that's it. Okay. Um, and uh, just down here is the, you know, basically the Via Della Rosa starts over here. And we'll be walking and talking about that as we come back. Yep. And it winds right, right by the hotel that we're staying. So cool. And then we're also going to talk about the Kidron Valley which is just past the Dome of the Rock, but not quite to the Mount of Olives there. There's a big valley that, that, that is wedged right in between these two. And again, they call these mountains. Tusk, they're hills. Sure. But this is Mount Moriah right here, and that is the Mount of Olives, which is towers over both mm -hmm. uh, Mount Moriah and then uh, Mount Zion. Another uh, couple mountains that we can uh, see a little bit here is Mount Scopus is the mountain to the north. And then down here is the uh, Mount of Sin, which is still called that because that's where it is said Solomon offered up uh, sacrifices to the gods of his wives that he'd okay. taken. And uh, just for reference, then the city of David, where David had his city, is going to be just south of just the Just south. It's kind of Moscow. part of the same the same structure here, sure. but it, it, this is the highest slope, and it goes down all the way to the the Hinnom Valley is the the end point where the Hinnom Valley meets the Kidron Valley, sure. and that's where the the city of David okay. is. Well, lots to see. Lots to see, and uh, we have history that goes back thousands of years in history here that will go uh, in the future for forever because this mm -hmm. is the mountain that God chose to be His forever. Okay. Well, we'll. Uh, have some more sites. We've actually already taped the Kidron Valley and the Via Della Rosa, so we'll get to those. And uh, more sites as our trip unfolds. So we're here in the Kidron Valley, which is to the east of the old city of Jerusalem. Behind the camera where you're, you're seeing us is uh, up over the hill is the, Mount, the Temple Mount. And we've got the Mount of Olives behind us. Ryan, why don't you talk about the Kidron Valley and the significance of the site? Well, the Kidron Valley goes all the way back to uh, Abraham's day. And actually, another name for this, and actually, when you enter into this section here, it's called the Enter into the King's Valley Promenade. And the King's Valley is a name that goes all the way back to Melchizedek, who met Abraham here, somewhere in this valley, and blessed him, and Abraham tithed to him. And we read of that in Genesis 14, and we read of it in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. And so really f huge things went on in this valley. I mean, that's the, uh, the source of this priesthood that we first read about. Uh, that is the eternal priesthood of Christ. And we read that uh, Melchizedek came down with bread and wine to this valley. Uh, the other thing about this valley is, again, this is in between um, the Mount of Olives mm -hmm. and Mount Moriah here. So the temple's over here and uh, the Mount of Olives is over here. So over this mountain is where Jesus came over on uh, what we would call Palm Sunday or Lamb Selection Day. So he comes over the Mount of Olives and then he 
um, goes uh, through this valley and then ascends up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And so that is <clears throat> obviously a huge event in salvation history. Um, well, then we've got just days later, we're over it's going to be off the camera, but we'll we'll put it in. There's uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is right over here, at least traditionally speaking. Yeah, and, and actually most people agree it's got to be somewhere around there because mm -hmm. it's on the Mount of Olives. And so Gethsemane's there uh, right over here. This is where Jesus gave what's called the Olivet Discourse on this mountain over here. Um, and then, you know, as Jesus came to Gethsemane, um, he would have came from the city to Gethsemane, so mm -hmm. he would have crossed the Kidron. And then he's arrested and he crosses the Kidron before. So Jesus is going back and forth over this valley many times. In fact, during that week, it says he goes and stays in Bethany uh, in the evening. So he's constantly so which crossing direction over. Is Bethany? Bethany's over the, on the other side, uh, of the other side where there. Lazarus was uh, raised from the dead. Okay. So you have that. The uh, Lord ascended from the Mount of Olives here. Mm -hmm. So uh, the ascension happened here. Um, uh, furthermore, you have uh, a future event that hasn't happened yet that the Mount of Olives is going to be split. And that's in, we read of that in Zechariah 14. The Lord's feet are, is going to stand on the mountain east of Jerusalem, which is this mountain, and split the Mount of Olives, and then he is going to lead an exodus out of the city during the time of Israel's redemption. So the this mountain coupled with this valley, and then the even more significant mountain, which lies to the west of it, which is Mount Moriah, right. where the Temple Mount is, where Abraham offered up Isaac. So really the significance here is you have two amazingly significant mountains in between, um, or, and with the Kidron Valley uh, carving this valley in, in between. So uh, there's not really a more significant couple stretches of, mm -hmm. of acres in the entire universe mm -hmm. than right here. These are mountains that the Lord has chosen to, for big, big events in the days of salvation history. Yeah, cool. Well, what's, you could just see it in the, in the shot, but there's this tomb here. What's mm -hmm. the significance of the tomb? Well, these tombs you have, uh, uh, one is called Zechariah's tomb, the other is Absalom's pillar. And they're all built later on. So they're not actually... The traditional? Yeah. yeah, they wouldn't go all the way back to those, uh, obviously, Absalom. That's another uh, point of biblical history that the Kidron is, is associated with, is the uh, David fled Jerusalem um, over the Mount of Olives when Absalom led his revolt. And so uh, Absalom's um, pillar here is a, uh, is a kind of a testimony to his rebellion. And he ended up dying in rebellion up in the woods of Ephraim up north when uh, Joab ended up running him through and he got his head stuck in a tree. And so yeah, Absalom's pillar, Zechariah's tomb. So uh, really most of the tombs of the kings would not have been here in the Kidron. The tombs mm -hmm. would have been over in the, the Zion or the city of David. Mm -hmm. And then maybe last for this particular site, but you can see that this, the Mount of Olives from, from the top all the way down to, to probably as low as you can see here is nothing but tombs. Yeah, and it, it's actually a mixture of, of both, uh, mo mostly Jewish, but also Muslim graves. Mm -hmm. and, and, and actually, they go all the way up to uh, this side, okay. ascending up to Mount, Mor uh, Mount Moriah. So the um, most, again, it, a lot of the expectation has to do with that Zechariah passage. They think that because the, uh, the Lord departed from the temple, he's going to return. 
and he's going to return from the Mount of Olives, whereas glory was last seen in Ezekiel. And so they think they have front row seats to the the resurrection resurrection here. And so that's why this is a very popular site. And yeah, it's a little morbid to think of how many bodies uh, are, are layered throughout, not only just what we see on the top layer here, but even beneath that. Cool. Well, thanks. We'll move on to the next slide. So, Ryan, now we're heading back towards our hotel in the middle of the old city. And uh, this is the street that's famously known as the Via Della Rosa. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Kind of starting a little late because we passed the... Pool of Bethesda. Yeah, which and we're actually, to talk about it's supposed time, to start later up at what's called Ecohomo, which mm-hmm. is where uh, the stone payment, Gabatha. And a lot of this, what, what it has to do with is, um, you know, historical sites and their authenticity. Now, um, I personally do think that this probably is the general area where Jesus was on trial. I think it is the best. But if we were truly tracing the, the paths of where Christ walk first off this is none of this would have been there right. it's way way beneath here right and none of these walls would have been here so it would have been a much different city but this is the when you're touring israel you're going to get a lot of traditional sites and they're probably not where things actually happen but right now as far as the where jesus was crucified my my preference is we go north now uh, and up at uh, Gordon's Calvary. Which uh, is that the tradition where we go to the garden tomb? That's the garden, yeah, garden tomb. Now, I'm not saying that for sure is the exact spot, but I think mm-hmm. that general area is much more likely. Okay. Now, as we keep walking on the so-called Via Della Rosa, this is a path that a lot of Catholics and Eastern Orthodox take in order to retrace the steps that historically they think Jesus would have taken because sure. this takes us to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is their, their traditional location the Catholic for... Catholic and Orthodox? Or, or, yeah, for the most part. Um, there's always, again, some disagreement within there, but the... Uh, the uh, That's where they say he was crucified and buried. And right. so... Um, a lot of scholars agree with that. Now, the main reason that I disagree with that is theological, because that would make Jesus not crucified on Mount Moriah. Sure. And um, so here we take a right. Mm-hmm. You see the Via Della Rosa signs? It's nice to have these recorders where we can walk through a, a bustling city and yeah, still, hear what still we're catch doing. It. And so, you know, as we keep going up here, we keep going, and ultimately you're going to come to the site of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, that was that was on a hill west of the city. Now, it, although it is inside the modern city walls, most archaeologists think it, that that would have been outside the city walls in the first century. Okay. So, um, so that argument doesn't isn't really a good one, right? So that so argument it that it's within the city walls, yeah, it's within the city walls now, today, but, but not but back not, not back then. Sure. So, but like uh-huh. I said, the, theologically, I think looking at 
Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah stretches from the Temple Mount, and the, and really Gordon's Calvary is the crown, okay. the highest point of that mountain. Now that goes back to Abraham, that we talked about before, yep. that Abraham offered up Isaac on that mountain, and he said the Lord will provide a lamb, and then on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And sure. so all of that pattern fits, I think, better with what we see. And historically that would have been known as a, uh, a, a place of execution and uh, a, a place where perhaps, again, the place of the skull. Sure. There's wonders about what that meant. Some that the skulls were there from being executed. Some would have been um, something. There's an outcropping there that kind of looks like There's an outcropping today. And again, that's the, we don't know how yeah. how, how it looked 2,000 years ago. So it's 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 possible that, that, sure. the, the, that it looked like a skull. Um, the other the other point that make, people make is that entire mountain between uh, going to the foot of Zion. It's all kind of part of the same mountain. Zion, city of David, Mount uh, Moriah, and that outcropping is the highest point. And some people would say that's the skull of the entire mountain. With okay. the lower point kind of stretching down to Hinnom mm -hmm. is the feet. Sure. The Temple Mount would be the heart. So uh, place of the skull could be that too. Okay. Farther most, farthest most point. So ultimately so, we don't know. We're not going to take this all the way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but um, for those who are aware, some have been to Jerusalem, but many haven't, but the city, the old city that we're in is divided up into quarters. They're not equal quarters, but no, quarters. But, so we're walking through the Muslim quarter. And actually, you know, we're, we're right on the precipice here. I think we're, we may be in the, uh, getting right into the Christian quarter right now. Sure. And then there's an Armenian quarter. Which, which is far, which is farther south, and then the Jewish quarter, which is the farthest south of the old city, and where the Temple Mount, or, and where the Temple Mount is just uh, east of. Okay. All right. So Ryan, we're now on the uh, east side of the Kidron Valley at the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, and this uh, is actually a. Uh, really, remember we have the, the point system, and I don't know if we brought that up yet, but uh, no, the, we point system, the point system that we have in Israel is a spectrum of uh, what is authentic, whether this is the place or not. A one is for sure, a two is likely but can't prove it, a three is unlikely but can't not prove it, then four is no way. Mm -hmm. And this is very close to a one. Uh, ultimately, the region here is a one. This yeah. is where Jesus came. Um, after the Last Supper, after the Passover meal, and he came here and he prayed. And this Gethsemane is an olive press. And uh, looking at the, the, the theological backdrop, Jesus was being pressed here. He, mm -hmm. um, and interesting, that which gets pressed out is, you know, here is olive and olive oil. And the uh, olive press is where you would get anointing, you know, an anointing oil from. And so the, the dynamics here is the suffering that Christ was about to undergo here, uh, already here, even though he is not being put to death yet, he's um, at, at a point here being pressed. He's uh, um, pleased with his father three times. And this is actually interesting because we talked about this mountain, Mount of Olives here. Mm -hmm. This is a uh, 
a reverse watershed. <laughs> You're down here and this way over the mountains is freedom. This is where you flee from oppression, flee from threats. That's where David fled. We talked about that. Yep. That's towards the Dead Sea Dead and the sea Jordan Valley. And, yep, and the Jordan Valley, the wilderness where right. you can go hide. Here for Christ was crucifixion to that mountain. So he stayed here. He did not flee. He stayed here and said, not my will, but thy will be done, thus obeying. Some of these trees, um, they say that uh, at least the the origins of the trees, some of them may stretch back to the time of Christ. That's how old some of wow. these olive trees are. Yeah. So, and even just looking at the trees themselves, they are an amazing Some um, of them are look. huge. They, they look like... Yeah, and, and just the... The, the trees themselves and the shapes, it's very unique. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yes, here we remember Christ um, being here in the Kidron Valley, and he, um, he, he was obedient. And not my will, but thy will, Father. And this is a, uh, a place that we, um, it's a great place to reflect on the obedience of our King. Mm -hmm. Cool, Garden of Gethsemane, thanks. So we're on uh, Mount Zion, which is just right outside the old city walls, uh, the south southwest corner of the old city. Mm -hmm. What's the significance of this site? Of this site? Well, first off, as we got here, it's always a pain in the neck to find. <laughs> you wander around and you ultimately finally get here. Um, you have to get outside the city walls to get here. <clears throat> and there's two sites here that pilgrims come to see. One is the upper room or the so-called upper room. The other is David's tomb, or the so-called David's tomb. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so there's actually three things that, uh, there, there's all sorts of problems <laughs> here. First off, it's called Mount Zion. Now, it's not actually biblical Mount Zion. This has to go back to uh, later uh, settlers and pilgrims falsely identified this as biblical Mount Zion. So this is and like a three or a four? On this would be a, yeah, this would be a, a, yeah, I'd say a three, but bordering a four uh, based on archeological excavations. So this isn't actually biblical Zion. Biblical Zion is uh, south, east, and then even going up to, to Mount Moriah. It's that's part of the same mountain structure. So, so this isn't really Mount Zion. And in light of that, this really, in, in all likelihood, then isn't the place of David's tomb. And so David would have been born, or buried uh, very likely back in the tomb, with the tombs of the king uh, in Zion. Either, well, it, 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 there's, some, there's some evidence that there may be some tombs in Kidron, but uh, I think actually in, on, the Mount, on Mount Zion is where, uh, or near Mount Zion is where the kings were buried. And so David's tomb would have been, would have been over there. I think that's closer to a, a two. Uh, then you have the upper room, and this is a room that pilgrims go, and we just were in there, and people were, were singing. They see this as the, the place. It's often advertised as the place where Jesus had the Last Supper. Well, it was, they were singing, not in English, <clears throat> sounded like maybe Latin. So. Yeah, it could be, a, could be a Catholic liturgy or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And uh, once again, the, the structure and the archaeology dictates this. The, that would not have been the room that Jesus would have would have been in. All of the architecture is not first was, century. We didn't film there because it's really dark and we wouldn't have gotten very good yeah, uh, it's, up there. You wouldn't see much because the room's just too dark. There wasn't a lot of lighting in there, but it, it appears to me to be maybe a 16th, 17th century building. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, that's the interesting thing about being in, in Israel is 
that's new. Right. <laughs> you know, you go back to the U.S., that's old. That, you know, that's, you know, the beginning of our country time. Uh, this, that's new here. Uh, you go up to the Golan, and there's a gate that's uh, 4,000 years old. Mm -hmm. So uh, the upper room, now, that being said, this region uh, may well have been the place where Jesus did have the, uh, the Last Supper with his Passover with his disciples. Uh, as a lot of uh, tradition uh, and uh, early Christian literature um, uh, had identified this general area as perhaps where he, um, where he would have uh, had his Passover meal with his disciples. And again, I think that's between a two and a three. It's, we, we just, we, there's just not enough to know mm -hmm. uh, because it, things come along so much later. So this, it's a beautiful area, and there's some beautiful architecture here, and there's interesting things to, to take in here, but as far as veracity of, uh, of biblical locales, this one would be low on the totem pole. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thanks. Mount right. Zion. Mount Zion. Uh, here in Jerusalem, the Jewish quarter with Aaron Lamarco. If you remember, Aaron was on, uh, I think it was 125 last summer. We did a, an episode, so um, so you've, you've been on Echo Zoe before, mm -hmm. and uh, you're going to be spending the rest of our trip with us, from what I understand, mm -hmm. so yes. do, we've done a few videos with Ryan, and we'll do some with Aaron too, but we're talking about uh, the Western Wall, which you can't see in the shot with us right now, but um, the Western Wall is behind us, um, a few blocks, and, uh, and the menorah here, which, you want to tell the story about the menorah? Well, you know, we're standing in a really unique spot. Firstly, this is the old city of Jerusalem, and the old city has four quarters. One of those quarters is the Jewish quarter, and that's where we are. And about a year ago, uh, members from uh, an institution called the Temple Institution, they moved this menorah behind me right here in the heart of the Jewish quarter. And this is very significant because that menorah will be the menorah that will be placed in the new temple that they want to build. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, if you go back in history, uh, in the book of Exodus chapter 25, uh, even before the temple, there was what was called the tabernacle. And uh, uh, we read that the Lord told Moses to meet out a seven branch candelabrum, mm -hmm. candlestick holder, called a menorah. <clears throat> And he gives the exact description. They should be with uh, almond shapes, with flowers, three on one side, three on the other. And so based on Exodus 25, based on historical writings like Josephus, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Old Testament, they've tried to get as best shape as possible, as close as possible to what probably was in Moses' tabernacle. Mm -hmm. In any event, the the uh, menorah, it stood in the holy place in the temple, Solomon's temple, uh, in Herod's temple as well. Mm -hmm. And so this menorah, which by the way, it's not pure gold, but it is coated with probably about a hundred pounds of gold covering. That's, that's quite a lot. Yeah. Well, I've always uh, been surprised. This is my third time to Israel. And uh, even back in my first trip in 2002, it wasn't here. It was kind of off 
Uh, it was actually down in this direction. Well, last time I came in 2014, it was down kind of by the western wall. But Correct. in 2002, it was down. Um, there's a, a kind of a lower area. I don't remember what they call that, but it's, it's kind of over this yes. direction in the yes. Jewish Quarter. It was down off the street. Correct. And they've moved it. Every time I come, they move it. Yeah. But well, I'm always surprised to see this huge gold. I mean, that thing's got to be worth millions of dollars. It would be. Well, there is it's an institution. The <laughs> well, it's good security. It is. <laughs> Look, the the institution who've uh, raised the funds to get this built, <clears throat> they want to see a rebuilt temple. Mm -hmm. Now, the place that that temple will be built is obviously going to be on what we call today the Temple Mount. The only problem is, is that there is a a, uh, a Muslim mosque and a Muslim shrine up there and it's in the hands of the Muslims. It's under Israeli rule mm -hmm. but uh, as far as the religious operations of the Temple Mount goes it's in the hands of the Muslims. So this is a problem. Now the first temple we usually say is Solomon's temple but actually it was David's. David had the vision for it but he wasn't allowed to build it because he had blood on his hands mm -hmm. and he was a man of war so the religious observant Jews today they're very very careful how they bring about the rebuilding of the temple they will not use force because of what happened with David. And last time I was here we went to the Temple Institute and that's one of the things they talked about was they they, they want this temple and they're re they're ready if, if the opportunity arises they can start building the, the, well, the, from what I've read, the altar they can have up in hours, and they, they can start have, sacrifices. They have all the foundation stones. They have the priestly garments. They mm -hmm. have the priestly instruments. They about six months ago. Now it's official. Uh, they have uh, bred the red heifer, a, a, a pure, undefiled red heifer. Now, so they the, the, yeah. the everything's in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not an issue. Um, the issue is the location, the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when you look at the past, you look at the present, I mean, we're really heading for something in the future. And they are determined, they're praying. We, The Jewish people pray for the rebuilding of the Temple and may it speedily happen in our days is the prayer. I would, I would. That gives us pause because we know what that means. Yeah, I would say keep your eyes and ears open mm -hmm. in the news and the radio and the television of the Temple Mount. I believe that that's going to be a real key location as far as religious affairs, mm -hmm. political affairs for the future. Okay. All right, so that's the menorah. And, and like I said, this is it's always shocking for me to see this it's just sitting on the street, even though it's got that case around it and there was right. a siren going off when we walked up. Who's going to be able to uh, lift it and carry yeah, it away? It's just Unless you're a bunch of Roman it, soldiers ah. like 2,000 years ago, because we actually have, there's a, in the, uh, in uh, uh, Rome, uh, in the museum there, there is the famous uh, 
Arch of Titus, uh, which they have on a wall. It's a frieze of the Roman soldiers carrying the treasures of the temple mm-hmm. after they destroyed it in AD 70. And so it's there as a reminder. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, it's been nearly 2,000 years uh, since we had a temple last. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the Jewish people believe that we are in the messianic age. Firstly, the Jewish people are coming back home. Before the Messiah comes, their belief is the Jewish people will come back home to their ancient land and the temple must be rebuilt. So uh, that is definitely up there on their list of things to do Mm -hmm. and to pray for. All right. Well, thanks, Aaron. Yeah, you're welcome. So Aaron, we, uh, we're still here by the menorah, but uh, I wanted to talk about another site that we've, we've got some footage of. We'll, we'll kind of roll that over our, uh, our discussion. But uh, this morning we went and saw Hezekiah's tunnel and uh, walked through that. Can we talk about Hezekiah's tunnel for just a couple minutes? Well, Hezekiah's tunnel is one of four tunnels that we've found, ancient tunnels that the Israelites built. They came up with an invention. Uh, You know, when you settle in a particular place in days of antiquity, one of the key things you'd think about is water. Without water, you can't survive. But the other thing is you would think of security, height advantage. Problem with height advantage is how do you get to the water? water. It works because you have to go down to get the water. Mm -hmm. So the Israelites came up with an idea. They would find the source of the water outside of the city, and they would channel an underground tunnel, bringing the water in through an aqueduct. Then they would usually hide or camouflage the uh, The source source. of the water, and then they've got the waters flowing under the ground. And that's what Hezekiah's tunnel is. It's a tunnel that was built in the eighth century BC, when King Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah here, Jerusalem, And uh, he knew that the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, destroyed the 10 northern tribes called the Kingdom of Israel. He was on his way down here to destroy Judah. So he mustered his army, his soldiers together, probably some slaves, and they, uh, they threw picks and axes. They built this tunnel. It's probably about 1,300 feet long, mm-hmm. 1,300, 1,400 feet long, and they channeled the waters in. We read all about it in uh, the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel, number one. And number two, on the wall, at the end of that tunnel, one of the ends, by the uh, pools of Siloam, there's an actual inscription that the soldiers who were building the tunnel, they recorded what happened. Two groups of soldiers from completely different ends were building, or rather digging, and they were digging, they were getting closer. Of course, they didn't have GPSs right. and compasses. And they managed to hear, and this is what's on the inscription on the wall, we heard axe against axe, pick against pick, until the rocks fell through, the water came gushing out. Mm -hmm. And that's the amazing story. So not only do we have the biblical account, we have another account on the actual wall. Mm -hmm. Cool. And uh, 
people as they're, as they're watching this will see that because we did record that on our way out. So fantastic. That was a, it was a cool thing. I did notice uh, as we were coming through, there was a couple spots where it, it's it, as you're approaching, it kind of looked like it forked off to one side or the other. And I had to wonder, there was two of them and they were rather close together. Is that where they met? Because it, it kind of looked like maybe they went a little too far and then turned around and came back. And it was about middle of the tunnel. But as you're walking through Hezekiah's Tunnel, I, I, that's, that, that I know, was my impression. I know the couple of places you're talking about, and I don't know if that was the place. It mm -hmm. sounds logical mm -hmm. that that was the place that they did meet, but I cannot say for sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So, Aaron, we're here at En Gedi on the western side of the Dead Sea. We talk about En Gedi and the significance of this site. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this uh, desert oasis in the middle of the Judean desert, very, very hot in the summer, averaging about 110 Fahrenheit, uh, 42, 44 Celsius. Uh, yet in the middle of this very dry, barren desert, you've got all of these freshwater springs mm -hmm. coming out from the Judean hills, the Judean mountains. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to live out here or to camp out here, you'd have to be pretty strategic as far as uh, survival. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you've got trees, uh, you've got fresh water. So you can actually survive in this kind of desert. It's not like a Sahara or one of the outback Australian deserts. It is a desert that you can survive. And uh, probably the most significant or important historical story that's connected to this uh, uh, place here is a story found in, in uh, the book of Samuel where David finds uh, a place of shelter as he's running for, for his life from King Saul. Mm -hmm. Saul wanted to kill him. He makes his way out here into the desert, probably knew about the fresh waters that flow through, and uh, he, he comes out here and he's living uh, on one side of this, what's called a wadi or a or a, um, a ravine, uh, ravine or a canal. Mm -hmm. Perhaps ravine is a better word. Uh, and Saul finds out where he is, and he pursues him. He comes here. David's on one side, and Saul is on the other side. And uh, remember the, how the story goes: that one night David creeps down cuts off the corner of his garment, and then uh, in the morning he shows Saul, basically telling him, I could have killed you. I could have killed you. I'm not your enemy. I will not lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed. I recognize that you're God's uh, authority. I don't necessarily respect what you're doing to me, but you are God's authority. I'm not going to lift up my hand against you. And, mm -hmm. uh, for a time, Saul's heart softened, but then this evil spirit of the Lord came upon him and he continued to pursue David. So David, this was the place really where David was forced to really press into the Lord. And uh, I believe if you look at the book of Psalms, this is where a lot of those biblical Psalms were written. Uh, these, this biblical poetry. David was not only a warrior, a fighter, but he was a, a poet. 
-hmm. And he wrote some of these biblical uh, poems we call the Book of Psalms. And what I like is how he uses nature to connect to God. For example, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. Mm -hmm. uh, the Lord is the shade at my right hand. On a very hot day, the value of a tree, a, a shade. Uh, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. So coming out here really helps us to greater experience what David went through as he wrote those Psalms, the highs, the lows, the sense of injustice, the sense of loneliness, all, just about every emotional high and low David went through. And of course, there were times that he uh, felt the presence of the Lord, that the Lord was with him through those difficult moments. And so he breaks out into praise as springs come out of the wilderness. So his soul uh, broke out into praise. Uh, real quick, what were those animals that we kept seeing, the little rodent-looking things? They are called uh, hyrax, hyrax, which is also called a Syrian bear rock. Okay. And uh, they uh, they have families out here. In fact, as we were talking, I saw an ibex way up on the mountain. I was I wanted to get your attention, but I was in the middle, so it's gone now. But we'll probably see more. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, this okay. Getty. Aaron, we're at the top of uh, Mount Gilboa, by the, is it the east end of the Jezreel Valley? Correct, yes. So what's the biblical significance of Mount Gilboa? <clears throat> well, we're in a, a, a larger region called the Jezreel Valley. And uh, the Jezreel Valley has many, many historical stories that are found in uh, the biblical texts mostly in what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, but the two uh, major events that happen in and around Mount Gilboa, uh, they're connected not only with the Israelites, but with two of their very strong enemies, the Philistines and a group of people called the Midianites. Mm -hmm. uh, the first story is uh, during the period of the judges when uh, a group of people, a group of uh, uh, Canaanite people called the Midianites, they were actually, I got that wrong. Did I, I keep going, that's fine. Yeah, so uh, a group of people called the Midianites, uh, they were assembled and uh, we read about in the story of Judges, the story of Gideon, mm -hmm. and how we, you know, he calls his army in this region. And no, that's, is that, you said that's down in the valley here? Well, yes, the, there is a, a um, that's part of the story. It was connected to the mountain here, but wow. at the foot of the mountain, there is a, a spring. And the spring was really the ultimate area where they were tested. Because the, 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 the story, remember how the story goes, Gideon had 32,000 men mm -hmm. against 130, 36,000 Midianites. So that's uh, about 20%, a little bit less than 20%. Mm -hmm. And already the odds are totally against Gideon. Right. Five and, to one is... Uh... Right. And then and what does the Lord say to him? Does the Lord say, okay, Gideon, I'm going to send you more men. I'm going to send you your horses and chariots, which 
in those days was the equivalent of a tank. No, the Lord says to him, Gideon, there are actually too many of you. And so he tells uh, Gideon, tell the fearful and afraid to go home. So 22,000 of that 32,000 leave him, leaving him only 10 thousand men. So the odds are getting worse. Mm -hmm. The situation isn't getting okay. better. You know, sometimes hearing from God <laughs> isn't always good news <laughs> because the news was bad for Gideon. We were talking about the story on the in the car on the ride up here and, and joking that Gideon should have been one of those that was afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was a, he was just as human as us. Uh -huh. So but he stuck around. But he stuck around. He was he was uh, the 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 leader, mm -hmm. uh, and he was the chosen man. God had given him a sign with, with the with the fleece, and so now he was told to take that uh, uh, ten thousand. I'm sorry, told the 10,000. Uh, yeah, we were at 10,000. We got 10,000. We're going to get it down even further, right? And then, yes, that's right. The 10,000 were told to go down to the, the spring of Harod, which is at the foot of the mountain here. He takes the 10,000, and based on how they drink the waters, uh, that was how the Lord seemed to sift this army. Now, there's a number of different interpretations and theories. One is that the 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 uh, nine there was nine thousand seven hundred who put their heads down to the water like dogs lap lick up water. Okay, and uh, you know they put their heads down. They didn't keep their eye on the battle because up here on the mountain the Midianites were here. They could have jumped on the Israelites at any moment. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation uh, that I've heard of, at least, is that in those days, lapping water in that particular way, the bowing down their heads, was a very idolatrous way of worshiping. And uh, so the Israelites had adopted the Midianite ways. Mm -hmm. In any event, the Lord said, Gideon, with these 300 men, I will give you Midian. And uh, that was what happened. But So he got down to 300 against... 135,000 Midianites. Wow. Now those 300... They were told to take with them just a clay jar. Okay. And inside of that clay jar, they were told to take a candle or, or a wick lamp. Mm -hmm. And when, and they were to light it, but keep that hidden. And when they were told, they were told to shout, blow the shofar, the trumpet, and smash that vessel. Okay. And then what happened, they did that and through the surprise, through the confusion, Midian ended it's almost up like like flashbangs, you know, like a, yeah. a SWAT team might throw yeah. off. Yeah, especially think. at nighttime. Yeah, especially at nighttime when you see when you hear that smashing, mm -hmm. when you hear that blowing of the shofar, when you see those lights, it it caused surprise and confusion among the Midianites. They killed each other. They fled. Some of them. And that is how the Lord gave Gideon this victory. And uh, of course, 
if you look at that story and, and break it down and, and try to re-narrate that story and read between the lines mm-hmm. and, and reminding ourselves how human they were, these 300, they must have had their heart beating. Mm-hmm. They must have been thinking, you know, if God doesn't show up now, we're in big trouble. And they had everything on the line, their families. Yeah. This, I may never see my family again. My... But there also may have been some element of the faithful just saying, right. how, how is God going to do this? Like, I'm faithful yes. he's going to, but I can't wait to see how. Exactly. Yes. Or the other case scenario, there may have been some who just knew who just knew God is going to do it. God is going to do it. But I think there's a little commentary in the New Testament and in the book of Corinthians where Paul, 2 Corinthians, where he talks about, he uses this imagery of clay jars. And he, see, and he says, we, we are earthen jars or earthen vessels, and we have this treasure within us. And I just wonder whether Paul was not referring back to the story that when you think about it, it wasn't the Israelites that did it. The Midianites, they actually killed each other. They were the ones that fled. The Israelites didn't do. But the key, the key is they heard God. They were sifted. They, they had their characters. They had their hearts right before the Lord. But then they heard the Lord the, and, their, and their captain, Gideon. They got the orders, the strategy, what to do. And, you know, according to Judaism, they say the highest level of faith. He's playing with us. <laughs> We're here filming uh, The Conquest, which is a film that's follow-up to Jerusalem's King and Ryan's behind us flying a drone <laughs> for, for some of the, the Gideon scenes we're doing, as well as the Armageddon scene at the end of the movie. But uh, Anyway, the, 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 the rabbis of old say that the, uh, the highest level of faith is uh, hearing hearing God, hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. And uh, it, it may sound easy, but it's quite a challenge, especially yeah. when you're hearing voices of fear, hearing the voices of your emotions, hearing the voices of your circumstances. To rise above that and to really press in and hear from God, this is the key, and this is the highest level of faith. And that's what these 300 men did. And then they followed the strategies, and God gave them the victory through that. Now, the other story... Yeah, you, I was going to go there with, with uh, Saul. Yeah, well, the other story, uh, which is also connected to an ancient uh, foe of Israel, the Philistines, was up here on Mount Gilboa. We read that the first king of Israel, this was just after the Judges period, first king of Israel, Saul, who... Uh, we know he disobeyed the Lord. We know that his days were numbered anyway. But it was up here that the Philistines uh, finally uh, took Saul's life. They cut off his head. They cut off his son's head. And they placed it on, a, on the gates of a city just down here in the Jezreel Valley called Beit Shan. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, instantly, the anointed king in waiting, David, uh, heard about the news. And, you know, when you look at how Saul treated David and you look at the relationship, how... Well, we talked about that down at Getty. That's right, right. But uh, something else, too, and that's David's friendship with, with Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Because at one stage, they were extremely close. Some people say that Jonathan may have betrayed David. But uh, when David heard that, the, that Saul and his sons had been killed, he goes into a poetic lament. And he, he says, oh, you know, uh, oh, uh, Jonathan, oh, Jonathan, which is very interesting. He uses that terminology in, in poetic literature because... His far, uh, 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 a little bit later, uh, David himself would would lament his son Absalom when Absalom uh, was killed. Oh, Absalom, Absalom! A thousand years later, his son Yeshua, Jesus, when he was up on the top of the Mount of Olives, he would say, "Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem!" So this is a very well-known poetic lament. Mm-hmm. But um, David says, oh, uh, uh, oh, Jonathan, Jonathan, you know, uh, the love that I had for you surpasses the love that a man has for a woman. And the only love that I can think of is, is you know, God's unconditional love mm-hmm. that David had for him. <coughs> it's not a sick uh, homosexual love that some people you know, they yeah. they take this verse to say that they had a, a homosexual relationship. And, you know, if that was the writer's intention, it would have been very clear mm-hmm. that that was the case. But it, it wasn't, especially when you match it up with poetic, other poetic laments. Sure. Uh, but then he, David breaks out and curses these mountains. He says, uh, uh, may neither dew nor rain fall upon you, O Gilboa. Uh, So this is a a sad story, but it also shows uh, really David's human compassionate side, because you'd think that David would be rejoicing when this king who pursued him wanted to kill him, and David suffered big time at the hands of Saul. He had to flee. And he did nothing but good. He played the harp. He spoke wise. He cut off his garment and showed Saul that he's not his enemy. But that evil spirit of the Lord kept pursuing David. And and I think David paid a heavy price. And yet David would not lift up his hand against uh, the Lord's anointed. And he wouldn't even rejoice that now Saul was dead. And so I think it shows the, the character of David. Um, and now David's the reigning king. Mm-hmm. And it's connected to the story up here on Gilboa. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Aaron, we're at uh, Mount Precipice, which is on the uh, south side of Nazareth. It's like according to the sun. Nazareth's that way, the sun's there. We would be on the western side. Western side, okay. Yeah. Right on the Jezreel Valley. We were at Mount Gilboa, which is which direction? Mount Gilboa is in this direction. So we were over over there on the last video we did. Mount Precipice, what's the significance? Well, 
that's just a name, a modern name given to uh, connect with the story from uh, Luke chapter 4. Uh, this really is when the Lord began to uh, move from his, uh, his human aspect to moving in the power of the Spirit as his messianic role. Mm-hmm. So where we are here is Nazareth, okay? And we all know that that's where he grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, he came to Nazareth. And really there's only about uh, very few instances and mentions of his life from when he was a, a little baby coming back from Bethlehem to the beginning of his messianic role at the age of 30. We really don't have a lot that are recorded in the the four Gospels. Um, But what we do see, like putting a jigsaw puzzle together, you take one little piece and here, then you try to, you know, connect it. So after a while, a picture starts to appear. And so, you know, here we see he he went up to Jerusalem uh, three times a year as a Jewish young man. Uh, he was in the synagogue, which was a, a very common thing for a Jewish man to do. Uh, he was a carpenter, which included uh, mason work, stone work. I think uh, we did a, I think I did a show, it's been years and years and years, but that, that he was actually more like a architect or master builder, yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. Not, not a guy who builds chairs and tables. And, Correct. Yeah, the whole concept of the 21st century understanding of a carpenter, you know, to a second temple period carpenter is very different. Mm-hmm. So uh, he grew up in a very Jewish background, <clears throat> in a very uh, simple, humble village here, Nazareth. Uh, our number one great uh, historian, Flavius Josephus, he actually mentions every single town and village in the whole of the Galilee region, and he lists about 325, if I remember the number, every single town and village, and he doesn't even mention Nazareth. And so what does that say? It says it's not even worth mentioning. So into those humble surroundings, Yeshua from Nazareth comes. Uh, interestingly, the name Nazareth in Hebrew, or the word Natsrat, the, the root is Notzer, which literally means a branch or a, a shoot. shoot yeah. And we, you know, if you're familiar with some of the messianic uh, prophecies, one of them is in Isaiah chapter 11, which tells us uh, a branch, a rod shall come forth out of Ishai or Jesse, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the seed of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And it was here in Nazareth in one of the synagogues that that's what Yeshua said. He stood up and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Ruach Adonai Alai. And uh, what happened? He quoted some of the roles and functions of the Messiah. Uh, he would. Uh, he's anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, the opening of the prison to those that are bound, um, to comfort those who mourn. And it says he closed up 
the scriptures. Mm-hmm. All eyes were fixed on him. And uh, then he really threw the gauntlet down by saying, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they grabbed him and. Well, yeah, now we were debating had Yeshua, Jesus, done any miracles before that? If he had, then what he said may not have been such a shock to them. But if he hadn't done any miracles, if he hadn't shown any signs, and that's a key word, sign. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look in John's gospel, when he did his first miracle, the, the changing the water into wine, John uses the word non-miracle. He said, this is the first sign. Yeah. And of course, what is a sign? A sign points you to something. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the miracles Jesus did were actually signs. And that Hebrew word sign, ot, is found in the book of Isaiah. So the people of the day, when John wrote, this was the first sign, they would have paid attention to that word, sign. So, but if he hadn't done any signs and he just got up into the synagogue one day and decided, okay, this is the day, or, or pretty, at least... Pretty radical. Uh, it was would have been very radical, uh, you know, why they were so infuriated. And of course, he... Uh, made it. He wasn't surprised because he said, you know, a prophet is not accepted in his own home or town. Mm-hmm. He knew that. This was the history of the Israelites. Prophets were sent. And another case, the Lord said, uh, I send to you many prophets. You stone the prophets. This is our history. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't surprised. And uh, then Luke Uh, records that they took him to uh, a mountain and they wanted to actually get rid of him. Uh, Why they wanted to get rid of him, uh, you know, who is this? This is the son of uh, Mary, Joseph, the the brother, you know. Mm -hmm. Who is this carpenter telling us uh, this was almost blasphemous? Yeah. And uh, it's very similar to the story in the Tanakh, the Old Testament of Joseph, coming to his brothers, telling him, uh, their, uh, telling them his dreams, and uh, they didn't like it, and they took his coat. So um, this site here is dedicated to that event. We don't know if it was no. actually on this mountain. Sure, this is where the tour groups come to see it. Well, is this, uh, we yeah. talked about the, the scale one to four. I think Ryan and I talked about that. Is this uh, maybe a two <laughs> or two you know, and a half? It could, it could be a one. It could be a definite. We just don't know. Sure. We just don't know. But when you think of the beautiful view of the Jezreel Valley, mm-hmm. when you think of some of the biblical stories down here, many, many biblical stories, mainly from the Tanakh, the Old Testament stories of uh, uh, Jehu, uh, Elijah, uh, Ahab, Jezebel, tell tell uh, tell Jezreel down there that the, we found the palace of of King uh, Ahab, the story of Gideon, the story of Deborah the prophetess over on a mountain over here called Mount Tabor, uh, the witch of Endor, the 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 widow of Nain, many many biblical stories, and of course one story that hasn't happened yet uh, mentioned in the 
in the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, chapter 16, of uh, one day all the uh, armies being gathered in a place called Har Megiddo, the Mount of uh, uh, Megiddo, mm-hmm. uh, Armageddon, Armageddon, uh, Armageddon out of here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Phil, and maybe, you know, this was a good place that, to look down and meditate and think of some of those stories, but uh, we don't know for sure that it was here, but we know it was in the region. Sure. Yeah. Well, and then talk about that, uh, the battle and from Revelation. I think it was Napoleon who said, looking over this scene that we've got here, right, that this is the world's most perfect battlefield. Well, he certainly was a man of, of uh, battles and, and mm-hmm. wars and fighting. He knew he was a great, great military leader. And uh, he actually tried to, to take over the whole of the Middle East in, uh, in the late 18th uh, century. And uh, that's exactly what he said on this, uh, overlooking this, this uh, valley, the Jezreel Valley. And he almost took the area until uh, he took the port cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this would have been the Ottoman Turks at the time. From the Ottomans, uh, the Muslims, mm-hmm. and he, of course, was Catholic. Until he got to a place called Akko, the port of Akko, uh, northwestern. And uh, the Bedouins and the Muslims, they stopped him from taking over the whole who knows what history would have uh, how history would have changed had he taken over mm-hmm. but uh, he was sent packing with his tail between his legs <laughs> all right well thank you Aaron yeah you're welcome <laughs> all right so guys welcome to uh, Tsipori and uh, the word Tsipori is from the word Tsipor which means a bird and it's believed that this site was called Tsipora because like a bird perched up on a nest, Tsipora is actually, and you'll see around, it's perched up on like a hill and you can see all around you, okay? Now, that interpretation comes from Josephus, Josephus Flavius, who writes about it. And 2,000 years ago, believe it or not, in the days of Jesus, this was the capital of the Galilee. Now, not, not many Christians have heard of it because it's not in the New Testament. But this was, and you can tell by the size, this was the capital. This was the main city. One of the three main villages and cities, towns, along with what are the other two? Nazareth and Cana. Okay. Now, why it's not in the New Testament? That's a mystery. Why? This is the theory. Now, I used to teach, I used to teach that Jesus came here. This was the place of his workshop where he probably brought new tools. He came for stones, but I don't believe that anymore. And I believe the reason why Tsipori is not mentioned in the New Testament is because I believe Jesus would not have come to Tsipori. Why? Because like a number of cities and towns and villages of the day, there were some cities that were Roman. There were some cities that were fully Jewish, but then there were other cities that were a mixture. And among the mixtured cities, Jesus didn't go in. 
Let me give you two examples. One city that he didn't go into was Caesarea Philippi. If you read Matthew 16, it says he came to the borders or the region or the outskirts, some translations say, of Caesarea Philippi. That's what it says, number one. Number two, Tiberias was also a mixed city, Jewish and Roman, but it never mentions once Jesus going. In fact, many of these cities, it says when Jesus came and did his teaching, it says the people went out to him. And the Greek and the Aramaic is very strong. They went out to him. He didn't go into those cities. So this is very important to, to understand that it was, a, it was a very Jewish city, but it was mixed. And this was the problem. This was the problem uh, of the day among some of the Jewish sects, they did not like some of the Jewish people mixing among the Greco-Roman world, okay? And we know that a lot of the Jews of the day, they adopted Greek names, Josephus. His real name was Yosef uh, uh, ben Matityahu, but he took upon a Greek name, uh, Flavius Josephus. Um, and the Sadducees especially, they were the ones who, had, who really, really adopted the Greco-Roman culture. So, again, putting it into it, 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 its cultural context, it's really important to know. This was the center of the day. This was the capital of the day. This is a, a huge market area of the day. This was a residential area of the day. Um, this is where people would come, carpenters would come, this is where stonemasons would come, this would be the main marketplace of the area, along with Magdala. Have you been to Magdala yet? Okay, because that was also a major marketplace, along with it being a port place, and along with it being on the Via Maris, and through the Valley of the Doves, at the bottom of Mount Arabel, where Jesus would have come from Nazareth through to the east. So that also was a major location, but this was the major city called Tsipori, like a bird, Tsipor, up on a perch. By the way, the name of Moses' wife was called Tsipora, and that literally means uh, a bird. So apart from that history, we really don't have a lot of writing about Tsipora. We know that Josephus writes a little bit about it, that uh, there was, it snowed up here in the winter, number one. Number two, in the first great revolt in AD 66, when the zealots broke out against the Romans, the Jews here did not fight against the Romans. And because of that, they were spared. So it was, again, it was a, a liberal left-wing, you know, city. And so they, but, but, but they were spared. You know, and even though at heart I'm a right-wing nationalist, uh, the zealots were the extreme right-wing uh, nationalists. Okay, number two key history about Sipori was the um, rabbinic Judaism. When that first great Jewish revolt broke out in 66 AD, it lasted four years until the temple was destroyed in AD 70. A little bit later, in the year 135 AD, the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who crushed the second revolt, 
He then expelled the Jews from Jerusalem. So the Jewish leaders were facing a major crisis. No temple, no sacrifice for sins, no priesthood, because the, the documents of the priests were all burned when the Romans built, uh, burned and destroyed the temple. And now they've got no holy city. So up until that day, the temple was the major central focus for the Jewish people. But now there, there is no more focus. And now they're out of Jerusalem. What do they do? So they move from place to place to a place called Yavna. Then from Yavna, they move to, to, uh, to Sipori. And this in the year 200 AD, this is where a famous commentary called the, uh, the Talmud, the Mishnah, was uh, codified by a very famous uh, rabbi called Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince. And these are the Jewish commentaries along with the Bible that the Jewish sages uh, read and follow. But you need to know this was the real seat of authority to the Sanhedrin and to the Jewish leaders for a long time. Okay, so this is where what, what I would call or what uh, historians call rabbinic Judaism. These are the really uh, early foundation roots of rabbinic Judaism. Uh, and then it finally ended up in Tiberias. Okay, that, that became the real centra, cent, centrality of, of the rabbis. Uh, that's why Tiberias is one of the four holy cities, historical holy cities, along with Hebron, Jerusalem, Tzfat, and Tiberias, because that's where they, they, they ended up um, uh, settling. But this was a major step in the development of rabbinic Judaism. What is rabbinic Judaism? Basically, it's where the rabbis take the place of the priests, where the synagogues take the place of the temple, and where prayer and good works takes the place of sacrifice for sins. And that is basically mainstream Judaism until today. So Aaron, when you were at Sipori, not, I'm having a hard time remembering how to pronounce that. So Sipori, yeah. Sipori, okay. Um, we'll show the, you gave us a talk, uh, your tour guide style talk of the site. We'll show that. Uh, but you also wanted to talk about uh, a spot where we had kind of packed up and. Yeah. Um, well, one of the features of the site at Sipori is, uh, is a particular mosaic called the Mona Lisa of Sipori. And the reason why is because it's a, a picture and a face of the Greek god Dionysus or Dionysus. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it, the, the expression is almost like Mona Lisa. Yeah. Anyhow, um, uh, in a lot of places in the Galilee region, we have found a lot of mosaics of Dionysus. And so that's evidence that a lot of people uh, followed, worshiped the Greek god Dionysus. Now, the Greek god Dionysus or Dionysus is the Greek god of wine or drunkenness. Mm -hmm. And really what that meant, it meant that when you took wine, 
you drank it and you believed that the wine going into you would give you pleasure, would give you peace, would give you joy, and would give you fertility, fertility of the womb. And so uh, that's why people pay money for these mosaics. You know, it's like today, the people uh, are Jewish, they'll put their money toward a synagogue. If they're Christian or Catholic or Muslim, you put money toward a mosque, a, a church, a shrine. And in those days, they put money towards mosaics uh, and temples because they believed in it. So Dionysus, Dionysus was a very well-followed God. So a lot of people drank wine and got drunk, uh, believing that it was going to bless you, going to give you uh, fruitfulness. Now into that context, and by the way, the mosaics that we found are dated to the second temple period, which is the period of our Lord Jesus. And Sipori, uh, which I mentioned was the capital of the Galilee, that was one of the three key villages, towns, along with Nazareth and along with Cana. Now, in the Gospel of John, John records the first miracle, but he doesn't use the word miracle, he uses the word sign, ot. And in the Second Temple period, that word meant a lot for Jewish people, a sign, because they would have known their Bible, for example, the prophet Isaiah. He says a number of times, therefore the Lord shall give you a sign. Okay, that word ot, sign, is a very important word. So John uses this word when Jesus comes to the wedding and he turns water into wine. Now, was it just a miracle or was there something deeper? And I think the fact that John uses the word a sign pointing towards something I personally think it's very similar to if you look at Moses. Moses himself said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, the Lord your God will raise up unto you one like me. Listen to him. And uh, Moses was the deliverer. Moses was the, 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 the one who went into Pharaoh and he called down judgments on the Egyptian gods. So those 10 plagues, they weren't just random frogs, lice, hail, blood. They were actual challenges and judgments against the Egyptian gods. One of the Egyptian gods was Ra, the sun god. Mm -hmm. So Moses called down darkness as a challenge to the Egyptian god. He strikes the Nile with blood. That was a challenge to the Egyptian god of the Nile. And I believe when Jesus turned the water into wine, I believe this was a challenge, a, a confrontation with one of the chief worship gods of society of the day. Dionysus, the god of wine, of drunkenness. By the way, Dionysus had a mother and no father similar to the Lord Jesus. Dionysus died and rose from the dead, similar to the Lord Jesus. So I think the Lord, by doing this, was making a statement. I am the true source of pleasure, peace, joy, fruitfulness. And this was a sign that he was 
the true one like Moses, the deliverer. Mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, you never mentioned it, but when you were talking about the Nile and Moses turning water into to blood, and, and is, do you see a link there between, well, I know you see a link, but, but um, Jesus turning the water into wine, Moses turns water into blood, and, and, and later on we see in the Last Supper that Jesus is likening wine to blood. You drink this cup, you drink of my blood. Could be a connection there. Could be a connection there. Yeah, I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that was really interesting. And we were talking uh, as we walked out of there, too, about um, that uh, you, you had mentioned going up that that site tends to be one that the, the more scholarly tourists like to go see, but your average pilgrim tends to skip over it. Yeah. And and I really appreciated that because it gets into, it, it, when you start getting into the historical context like that with Dionysus and the different gods they're worshiping and the, 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 the customs that they're following at the time that really shine the light on the scriptures much more than, than uh, just reading them from our current context, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Aaron, we're at Tel Megiddo on the west side of the Jezreel Valley, is that correct? Correct, yeah. We are in uh, the Jezreel Valley here, and uh, it's about a 25 mile or so long uh, range valley. And uh, we're at the largest tell in the land here. A tell is? A tell is an archaeological term, T-E-L. It's a mound of dirt or a hill made up of different civilizations. Okay. Now, the tell here has about 25 different layers of history. And the reason why there are so many layers of history, because of Tel Megiddo's strategic location. We are on an ancient trade route called the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. And so from the Western Plains, the ancient trade route went all the way from Egypt up to Phoenicia, Tyre, Sidon, that's today's Lebanon. But right here, it would cut through this valley and it would go up to the northeast, up to ancient Assyria. So it was a major trade route. And it's mentioned in the book of Isaiah, it's mentioned in the book of Matthew, It's mentioned in extra biblical writings as well. And of course, just like today, if you control the the seaports or the airports, trade, commerce, Mm -hmm. so it was a a key strategic location. Now, ancient armies and peoples that would be traveling through, uh, before they settled somewhere, there'd be some key elements that you'd want to think of before you settled. Let me guess. Water? Yeah. Water, obviously, the most important. You you cannot survive without water. High ground? High ground. Why high ground? Sea approaching armies? Security. Fortification. Correct. Mm -hmm. Another key thing would be agriculture. The land around you, are you able to plant, grow, eat, and trade? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the, the other key would be the trade routes. But 
Megiddo here in the Jezero Valley has all of those elements. It has water springs in the valley, in the Jezero Valley. <coughs> we have the, uh, the, uh, the height advantage here. Uh, we have good uh, fertile land. And of course, as I said, we're on the major trade route. So according to the annals of ancient history, the very, very first mention of a battle was mentioned here at Megiddo in uh, the 15th century BC. Uh, Pharaoh Tutmos II, one of the Egyptian uh, uh, pharaohs, uh, had a major battle here in 1498. So that's the first mention. And what's interesting is one of the last battles that's going to take place is also mentioned here in the book mm -hmm. of Revelation. It talks about the nations being gathered into a place called Har Megiddo. In Hebrew, the Har is a mound or a hill. Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. So this is the land, this is the valley, the, the valley of Armageddon, as it's called. Uh, and, and this is where Antichrist is said to be gathering all of the forces. Everybody comes. Well, the, the, the text doesn't actually say that there will be a battle here. It just says that the armies will gather here. Mm -hmm. And uh, assumably it's to gather for a major battle that will take place. Mm -hmm. Probably up in Jerusalem. But it does talk about these fields being filled with bodies and blood that right. will take seven years to clear up. And so uh, this is synonymous with battles, with victory. Even uh, Napoleon uh, Yeah, we Bonaparte talked about that when we were up on uh, Nazareth. In the 18th century, looked out on this valley and said this would be an ideal place for an epic mm -hmm. battle. But one of the things, I mean, apart from ancient gates that we've uncovered here, uh, watchtowers, we found a, uh, an, a, an ancient Canaanite altar. Uh, another thing we found is an Israelite tunnel that uh, channels the water from outside of the city. It's a lot like Hezekiah's tunnel. Exactly like Hezekiah's tunnel, channeling the water under the ground, uh, camouflaging the source of the water mm -hmm. outside and uh, bringing the water into the city. By the way, the word source reminds uh, me of a famous book uh, written by a famous author, James Michener, called The Source. And he based that book on this very site, oh. Tel Megiddo. One of the advantages, as we said, about having height is that if your enemies would try to surround you, uh, it was very. It would be very hard to penetrate into a city, mm -hmm. similar to Masada, right. similar to yeah. Jerusalem, similar to Hatzor. Uh, one of the disadvantages is that your enemies would quite Wait often try to, to 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 starve or thirst you out. Mm -hmm. This is called siege warfare. Right. So. The Israelites came up with this idea to channel the waters into the city, so that was good. But then they would need things called silos. A silo is a grain storage room, and we have one just behind us up here. And that could hold grain for up to about three months for about 15,000 wow. soldiers, people. So 
you got to think back into days of antiquity and ask three months, who's going to last? Are the people inside the city going to be able to last? Or are the people outside of the city going to be able to last with the agriculture in the fields and water? If they can find the source of the water, then sky's the limit. And this is what Hezekiah said in Jerusalem when he wanted to hide the waters. He said, why should these Assyrians come and take from our waters? This whole idea of siege warfare, it really speaks to me because as right from the Garden of Eden, it seems that there is an an, an epic battle going on between God and his followers mm-hmm. and the accuser, Satan, Satan, and people who are under his influence. And for those who are followers of God, it seems that we are constantly under siege within our minds. Right. And even if you look right from the Garden of Eden where the the Satan, the, the accuser, comes along and starts to attack Adam, starts to attack Eve. And uh, even the Lord Jesus, for 40 days, for 40 nights, when he was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, he came under massive siege. And I talked about a silo, a, a, a storage room. If you don't have a storage room in times of siege, you're in trouble. And then if your grain or your supplies get down to the bottom, what do you do? You've got to go outside the city, and mm-hmm. that's that's the end. Right. <laughs> so it, it's interesting. The Lord Jesus, he had a good storage room because every time he came under siege, he was able to draw on something that he had stored up in his life, and that was the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And I think this place here, Tel Megiddo, is a good audiovisual example and a good reminder of the need to have things stored up mm-hmm. because as I say we are constantly under siege we have an accuser we have an enemy uh, one of the titles that the Lord Jesus calls him is uh, the liar and the father of all lies and he even knows how to twist God's word. Mm-hmm. He certainly tried that with the with the Lord Jesus, and so we. This is why we need to store up God's word within us, so that when we do come under siege, we can pull out the sword of the Spirit. It's, it never ceases to amaze me. Just before Joshua and the Israelites came in to the land of Canaan. Uh, the report here in the land was that there were giants, there were fortified cities. They even said that we look like grasshoppers mm-hmm. in their eyes. <clears throat> and what does the Lord say to Joshua? Uh, he doesn't say, Joshua, I'm going to send you more army, more weapons. He says, be strong. Be courageous. And then he says, do not let this book of the law depart from out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it 
day and night, then you shall be prosperous and then you shall be successful. And it's when you look at the context where the, you know, the Lord gave that to Joshua, it, it, it's astounding. Mm-hmm. That was the weapon. That was the formula for success. The only formula that he seems to be giving Joshua. So if you think about it in that context, how much more do we need it, especially in times of siege? Wow, thanks. Now we're here at Caesarea Maritima. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Okay. And um, this will be our, our closing scene. I'm going to step out. I'm going to let Aaron be a tour guide for us for this uh, next last part of our video. Well, we're standing here on the Mediterranean coast on the ancient major trade route, the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. We're standing at Caesarea, the port city that King Herod the Great built in only 12 years. And the main reason he built the city was because of the port. The port that our famous historian Josephus Flavius tells us could hold up to 700 ships. And the reason why he built this port was for money. Because any boat that traveled up and down the Mediterranean, all the way from Egypt in the south to Phoenicia in the north, had to pay a taxation. So it was a very ingenious idea by King Herod the Great. For me, among all the biblical connection and stories at Caesarea, including the Apostle Paul, who was here for two years, including Pontius Pilatus, who was the procurator, including Herod the Great, some of the early church fathers, Tertullian, Oregon, St. Jerome. For me, the most important story is a story that is connected with actually not someone that was Jewish, someone that was Gentile, a man called Cornelius. We read about him in in the book of Acts chapter 10. Uh, He was a centurion. He resided here in Caesarea. And the scripture tells us that he heard a voice one day call for him. He answered, yes, here I am. And the voice said, your prayers and your arms have come up as a memorial before the Lord. Send to Joppa for Simon Peter, who was residing at a house of a man called Simon the Tanner. We know that a tanner was not just someone who laid out in the sun getting a tan, but it was someone that dealt in leather, hides, skins. So Cornelius sends his servants, it's about an hour's drive south along the Mediterranean, to an ancient port city called Joppa or Jaffa. While his servants are on the way to Peter, Peter is on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house, and he's seeing this vision of a sheet of animals come down. And a voice says to Peter, Peter, arise, slay, and eat. 
And Peter, seeing some of these animals, which were illegal according to the law of Moses, he resisted. But the third time the voice came to him, it said, what God has called clean, do not call unclean. Peter's not sure what's going on. Cornelius's servants arrive and they tell Peter, our master Cornelius heard a voice. You were the man in that, in that, uh, uh, that was told to come and get. We have uh, orders to come and get you. So Peter goes along. He comes north to Caesarea. And listen to what Peter says when he arrives. He says, do you know that it's unlawful for a Jew to not only eat with a Gentile, but to be in the very presence of a Gentile? Now, Peter being Jewish, comes along, Cornelius and his, some of his servants, they're all Gentiles. So for Peter to actually eat or be in the presence of a Gentile was totally against his religion, <clears throat> as well as the other Jewish people. you got to understand that until what's going to happen, Jews, including the followers of Jesus, including Jesus, disassociated themselves from Gentiles. They were, as it were, unclean animals. And Peter understood that the sheet of animals stood for the Gentile nations. <clears throat> In fact, Jesus calls the Gentiles dogs. Now, that is not a derogatory term. That simply means in those days, dogs did not live inside of the house. The place for dogs was outside. So basically he was saying, uh, you know, the Gentiles, they're outside of the commonwealth of Israel. So Peter says it's unlawful for, to be in the presence of the Gentiles. But then he says, but God has shown me that he is no respecter of person. What was it? that Peter could say, God has shown me. What was it? Well, I believe it was two things. I believe, firstly, it was that sheet of animals. And number two, the location where this happened. The, that location was Jaffa, Joppa. 700 years before Peter got that vision, something happened in that port city of Joppa. That is the port where Jonah the prophet ran away from the Lord. Why did Jonah run away from the Lord? Well, God said to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites, this Gentile nation, these pagans who have murdered your ancestors, and I want you to say to them that if they repent, if they turn toward me, I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to offer them salvation. And Jonah didn't want that. So he ran away to that port city. Now, Peter is a fisherman. He would have known every story in the Bible about fish, about nets, about boats. He would have known the story of Jonah very well, number one. And number two, one of Peter's names in Matthew chapter 16 is Simon, son of Jonah. Why did Jesus call him the son of Jonah? Well, maybe his father's name was Jonah. It's possible. 
Or maybe this was a prophetic name that the Lord was bestowing upon Peter. He was going to be the son of Jonah, the one like Jonah, who would take the message of the gospel, the message of salvation to the Gentiles. And Peter got it when he said, God has shown me that he is no respecter of persons and that any man who fears God and does what is right is accepted by him. So this is a very, <coughs> very strategic moment in the history of the early movement of Yeshua from Nazareth. This was a moment that up until now, all of the followers of Jesus were Jews. The first three from Capernaum were Jewish. Then it grew to 12. Then it grew to 70. Then to 120. Then it grew to 3,000. Then it grew to 5,000. They were all Jewish. And now there's a major happening, a major event where Peter comes and he meets this Gentile man, non-Jewish man, Cornelius. And this we could say was the first Gentile. And this is also where we could say that the church began to develop not exclusively Jewish, but Jew and Gentile. And this is actually the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. When God said to Abraham, Abraham, through your seed, through you, all the nations will be blessed. A little bit later after the story, right from here, Caesarea, another one of the apostles of Yeshua, Jesus, a man called Philip, right from this place, Caesarea, it says that he took the gospel, the message, out to the Mediterranean. And uh, even some traditions say that the apostle Thomas took the gospel to places like India. So this is a real crossroads of not just it being an ancient trade route, but a crossroads in history, a, um, a pivotal moment when the God of, not just the God of the universe, but the God who exclusively cho chose the Jewish people now is extending his grace to the Gentile nations. And it starts to go out right from here, Caesarea. Here at Caesarea, King Herod's son, Herod Antipas, was getting a lot of acclaim and applause, and people basically were worshiping him as a god. And it says that because he did not give glory to the true God, he was struck with sickness, and worms ate him, which is probably a literary term used to describe something was eating him, a sickness or something. This story shows us how in the ancient world, going right back to the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, how they would idolize and deify human beings. Even the name Ramesses is from two words, Ra-Moses, the, the child of the sun. And uh, a Greek leader, Antiochus Epiphanes, the word Epiphanes means God manifest. And here we have a story at Caesarea of people worshiping Herod Antipas as 
God. So there are real dangers in the ancient world. And here we have some statues that were found at Caesarea of people that they were trying to deify. And as they were deifying people, they would actually make statues of them. And I think there's a real danger when you look at the ancient world and how a big part of the Greco-Roman world was the Greek mythological stories. And a lot of those stories were uh, centered around someone who was a half man and half God, like Plato or Atlas, you know, carrying the world upon his shoulders. And a lot of the movies, even today, that you go to from Hollywood, they come, they, they depict a, a, a half man, half godlike status, hero. And I think one of the dangers is as we look at the biblical characters, we can almost deify them. Uh, going back to the, uh, the early church writings, I believe Paul understood the influence of the, the Greco-Roman mythological stories world, how it had affected the early church. For example, one Greek mythological story is of Narsus and how Narsus was walking along the road one day, saw his reflection in the water and he fell in love with himself and then he went to touch himself and he fell in and died. And psychologists and psychotherapists uh, they treat people with a, with a sickness today called narcissism. And it's actually taken from this Greek god, which basically is an unhealthy love of self. Now, parallel that with what the biblical teaching is of a healthy love of self. We're all created in the image of God. We're actually commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And I think a true self-love is basically just looking in the mirror, which is God's word, and seeing what he says about us, uh, especially through the cross, because we take all of the ugly parts, the, the sinful parts, we bring it to the cross, and then we find who we truly are and who we were truly created to be. So that's a healthy self-love. The other uh, danger is another uh, Greek um, emphasis, which is on something what we call gnosis. The Greek word gnosis means knowledge. And there was a belief in the, the Greco-Roman world that every human was imparted and gifted with special knowledge. Our challenge is to dig into that knowledge from within us. So the emphasis is not on God, the emphasis is on man. And this is what they called humanism, the focus on what man can do without God. This is actually where democracy was born. The word democracy means power to the people. And look what man can do. It actually goes back before that to the book of 
Genesis chapter 11, the whole story of the Tower of Babel. Look what man can do. We don't need God. Let's build a a building to heaven. Let's make a name for, not for God, ourselves. Which is very interesting if you look at Genesis 11, building a name and a tower for mankind. Chapter 12, we have a picture of Abraham and all it says is that Abraham built an altar unto the Lord. Look at the two buildings, Uh, a powerful big building, which God actually was not pleased with and he confused the people, he confused the language, to a simple, humble altar that Abraham was building. And of course, an altar is a place simply in which you bring a sacrifice which allows one to draw near to God. But the danger in the early church of this emphasis on looking within yourself, the source in yourself, this gnosis, this knowledge, and again, parallel alongside that is not that you have the source in you, but that the source of all knowledge lives in you, and that is centered in the person of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And Paul deals with this when he talks to the church at Corinth, to the church at Coloss, to the church at Ephesus, where he he talks about the, the dangers of philosophy and the Stoics, those that stood on the, 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 um, the balconies with great oratory skills and great wisdom, Socrates, Plato. And he says, where is the wisdom of this world? And he, he, he says, God has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise, the, the weak and the base things to confound the strong. And that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to this wise world. But to us who are saved, it is the very power of God. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com support. That wraps up episode 133. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. For show notes, visit echozoe.com slash 133. Be sure to check out the website also for links to connect with Echo Zoe on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, and love to connect with you. So follow, like, and subscribe to Echo Zoe Ministries. Help us to get the word out too by sharing or retweeting the announcements for your favorite episodes. Lord willing, we'll be back next month for the June episode of Echo Zoe Radio. 